Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our awesome guest is Jordan Skoll, a marketing leader and director of product growth at Autobooks. And we're going to talk about one of his principles about building franchises in everything you do. This show is brought to you by Userlist, the best way for SaaS founders to send onboarding emails, segment your users based on events, and see where your customers get stuck in the product. Start your free trial today at userlist.com. Hey, Jordan. Hey, Jane. I'm really excited to have you on board. Thanks for coming. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm very excited to be here. Can you please tell our guests what your background story is, what you do, and what you're up for? Yeah, background story. There are all kinds of background stories. So my professional one is I just kind of got sucked into entrepreneurship out of, out of college. Towards the end of college, I was actually a pretty poor college student and was studying economics and found sort of the tech scene. This was the mid 2000s around yeah mid to late 2000s 2008 that time period and just fell in love i started my own business right out of college and then so i wasn't quite on the marketing track yet but i i ended up working at a digital agency and then and then one of the very early things i did is uh, a mentor and friend of mine hired me into his startup as as employee number 4 that was a company called ambassador referral marketing software and they've since gone on to exit so that was the the beginning of the path and after that i've worked at active campaign i was an early employee at active campaign and actually built and maintained all of active campaigns internal automations on the marketing side so there was there was three subject uh, sort of internal clients at active campaign that were using the software so i did that for a few years i started my own startup went through a couple of accelerators and and now I'm doing product growth at Autobooks and then throughout that whole cycle I've had my own sort of projects on the side and I'm just a perpetual tinkerer and and I just love to build so it's it's my creative outlet. I'm curious why possessing all this marketing and product knowledge you decided to pursue a in-house position instead of doing your own stuff full-time? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So some of it's just very concrete. My risk profile basically changed as I began to have children. You know, that's that's one side of it. But the other side of it is I really sort of fancy myself as a sweat equity investor. So I don't have a lot of capital to invest, but a lot of the way I, one of my, my, my core mental models, and we'll kind of talk about this, is investing and, and what capital do you have to invest and how to invest and what returns do you expect to get? So Basically, I, I've picked okay. I've I've done okay picking companies to work for, and the returns are a little bit different than starting your own thing. But that's how I've sort of approached it. And I'd like to go do my own thing as well. But when I did do my own thing, when I did run the startup, the swings, the emotional swings, the ups and downs were pretty devastating to me psychologically. And so when I stepped away from that, it, and it was sort of, it's not that we weren't successful, but there's so much else that goes into it when it's your your entire existence. And that's why I love entrepreneurs and why I have so much admiration for them. The other thing too is my position on entrepreneurship has changed, as being the founder has changed. So for a long time, especially given the, you know, the timeline, the, the early 2000s, the tech crunch, 
I didn't see the possibilities of, you know, sort of the Rob Walling way, the the tiny seed bootstrapped. Ambassador was very bootstrapped in the beginning, but to me, it was all hyper growth. That's what I was seeing. It was like, get your name in TechCrunch, raise some giant round of financing. And I since have a new philosophy on that, which is that I can do both. I, I have investments and I invest my time in my side hustles and they do well for me. And if I can stack up enough of those side hustles, then I can quit my job. But at the same time, I can work full time and I'm learning so much. When I pick a full-time job, I, I really optimize around learning and I'm learning so much at this current job. It's the education that I'm getting paid to receive is just second to none. The people that I'm working with, Chris Speck, who is one of the, the founding folks for the Jobs to Be Done framework, worked with Clayton Christensen directly, Bob Mesta, uh, his old co-founder at Rewire Group. So the things I've been learning around Jobs to Be Done, customer interviews, how to speak to customers, demand side innovation, all of that stuff is just so unrivaled. And, and I'm, I wake up grateful all the time that I get to get paid to learn from those, those folks. So I really don't think of it as an either or full-time or entrepreneurship. It's, it's really both. And, it, and it's this uh, flexible, fluid sort of dynamic I have with myself. Tell us more a bit about your side hustles, because you've been able to grow them to decent uh, stage. So they're not just in tinkering, they're actual businesses. So what's <laughs> your most prominent product at the moment? Yeah. So my, my biggest, most profitable business right now is called UPC Code Manager. It's a Shopify app that helps Shopify merchants, founders easily manage UPC code. So UPC codes is this really gnarly world, confusing world, but you have to deal with them if you want to get your products listed on Amazon, Walmart, similar places. And so before I did the app, I actually had my own store, still have my own store. I sell NASA products, NASA t-shirts and space, things like that. And I wanted to get my products listed on Amazon. And I ran into this UPC problem and I just, I was, I just found myself dealing with just tons of spreadsheets, keeping track of everything, very manual process, paper. There's sort of distrust. I'd have to keep track of, okay, did these codes work? Did these codes not work? Are they a reputable source? And so I just said, I'm going to build software for myself to solve this problem. And I did, had a very early version of that, posted it on some Shopify forums. And actually it was interesting. There was so many Back then, it was like this, what, what was called an unlisted app. You can't even do that anymore with Shopify. And so many people would, had they, the friction that they had to get through to install the application and make a purchase was, it was like, warning, 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 untrusted developer, untrusted developer. And I did no promotion, no marketing. And people were just, I was just getting notifications that they were making purchases. And so I just said, okay, I'm going to double down on this one. I think at the time I had like some other idea. It wasn't even my main thought, you know, and I doubled down on it, did some refactor, got it approved in the app store. And I've been sort of maintaining it since then. And it's, and it was almost profitable from day one. I, I think it was profitable month one, the, the first month it was in the app store. So it was a very different experience than some of the other projects I, I had had and, and dealt with. And in both, I wasn't trying as hard. And it was more, and also it was more successful and less scary. So I just was solving a very, a problem that existed, solutions existed. There wasn't a ton of innovation. There was just a ton of, it was just sort of optimization. 
ladies and gentlemen, that's how product market fit looks like. <laughs> and like, you know, when you get there, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things, I don't know if this is helpful, but one of the things that I, I look at is I was, I think early on, I wanted to be the only person doing something. I wanted it to be so innovative, innovative in quotes that, that no one else was doing it. And, and by the time I sort of had matured and got to UPC codes, I actually Googled, you know, UPC codes for sale. And, and I don't think there was a single organic listing. I think you can go do this. There's not a single organic listing. It's all AdWords. And I said, holy, there's, there's a market for this. And if I can just figure out, I don't have to reinvent the wheel here. I just have to reinvent sort of the distribution of the wheel. It's Shopify merchants. Why don't I go to the app store? And why don't I make it, you know, not just sell the codes as like a downloadable text file, like everybody else is doing, but actually make it easy to use, make it, make it easy to connect, make it add some extra value in the way that the app works. And so that's what I did. And, and so I, I sort of raced towards the competition instead of running away from it. Let's talk about that franchise approach. When we decided to do this episode, you shared an article and is that live or is it a draft still? It's live. It's, I think it's the only article I have on my site. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. Great. We can link to that article now and give us an overview. So as a marketing an experienced marketer and as a director of product growth, you know that the work of marketer is pretty like, it's hard to convey. It consists of campaigns. And you suggest that the concept of campaigns is not perfect. And you suggest something else instead. Yeah. So this actually builds on some thoughts from a couple of my college friends, Eric Jorgensen, who talks a lot about leverage and Nathan Bashaw, who, who is, is very big in the podcast media space. I think he was actually one of the UI designers for product hunt in the very early days, if I'm not mistaken. And basically the idea is, so here's the story is at active campaign, we would launch new features. And every time a new feature came out, it didn't matter. What we would do is we would, it didn't matter what the feature was. We'd sort of scramble. We'd learn as much about the feature as we could. And then we put together a broadcast email and send it out to our customers. So this is at, at active campaign, right? Like the B marketing automation company, we're sending these, these email blasts and So one of the things I did was I designed this looping mechanism. I actually used some of my engineering background. And so I told you I'm a perpetual tinkerer. I love adjacent technology. So I had been tinkering with Arduinos. And the way Arduino, you write Arduino code is everything goes inside a loop, a loop function. And the loop function just runs perpetually over and over again. And the next pass through as user state changes the um the application will sort of it, it's like running through a series of if else statements and so i realized that i could do this with the email campaigns with the features where i could say if you've received the campaign go to the, just move on to the next one if you haven't received the campaign then send it and so that allowed me to create this perpetual workflow this perpetual automation where i could instead inject a a product announcement into that campaign. And if you had never received it before, it would be brand new. So the first time through, everybody would get it because they hadn't heard of it. But what happens if you sign up the day after a feature is released? You just don't learn about the feature? Like, is it, is it less valuable to you? And so in this situation, it actually just managed the timing for me and it managed user state for me and it allowed it so that You receive the most important feature announcement 
to you at the time it was most important to you. And it was sort of through learning about first learning, well, uh, at the same time, learning about engineering and learning about, about marketing automation that, that, um, I started to think about this idea of, okay, so the first time in engineering, there's this concept called dry, don't repeat yourself. And lately there's been this concept that counters that that's called wet, which is write everything twice. And so I was thinking through these thoughts, you know, you know, one side of my brain is thinking about these thoughts and the other side of my brain is sending these campaigns every day and, and just on this treadmill of emptying the dishwasher and every day, same, same sort of thing. And, and I kind of like put them together and I realized that, okay, do the manual work. But when you find something that works, when you find something that sticks, double down on it. And that, and then put it on the shelf, find the repeatable process, figure out how to automate that, figure out how to like scale that, feel, figure out how to turn that into the flywheel. So it's about figuring out the right level. We talk at work about figuring out the right level of abstraction. So do a lot of things quickly in the concrete. Don't prematurely abstract. I, I see that too. A lot of people immediately want to go to making the thing evergreen, making the system, building it for all use cases. Don't do that. Send the campaigns, but the campaigns that work, that have a big, big impact on your customers, double down on those, spend a little bit of time and energy on making those durable, making those durable. And um, that can be through automation sometimes. So you asked about the franchise. This was, this really clicked with me. Some, some tweets that Nathan sent out about the definition of a franchise and and basically it's you build something up into a system as the operator as the operator you build a system where you're uniquely qualified to build that system and design that system but eventually you should be able to hand off that system to the, the system should be durable enough that you can hand the system off to a less i mean in in sort of the language it's like a less qualified operator and and you're less you're less required and because the system was designed with durability that operator just needs to maintain it that 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 operator just needs to provide it, if it's a flywheel a little bit of uh extra inertia each, each pass they don't actually need to spin it up and so if you can spin these things up and then keep and then hand them off to an operator to keep spinning well, you have this amazing compounding effect that you can achieve in your personal life, at work, anywhere. And and when you hand it off, it can be to, you know, it can be to a, a systems process. It can be like engineering or whatever. It could be to employees. You can offshore it. What franchising it out means can vary. And I think it's worth exploring and being creative about what that means. But the idea is to to really not just keep sending campaigns over and over again. But, but once you find something that clicks, double down on that and put it on the, you know, productize it, turn it into a long-term sort of system or a flywheel. And it served me, that sort of thought process has served me really well throughout the years. And I, I can give more concrete examples of, of what I mean by that. Absolutely. would love to hear those examples. I think I have uh, one example here uh, right on the surface is, uh, is podcasts. For example, I've been running UI Breakfast for ages, but at UserList, we started better done than perfect. And it took enormous energy to 
spin this up to make decisions about the new show, the new format, the new visuals, the setup. But now it's down to smooth running. There is a podcast manager, Dan, who handles it for us. And my involvement is really limited to, you know, finding guests and interviewing them and everything else is autopilot. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. And, and the other, that's a great point too, because one of the things about it is, I mean, we can, we can remove the, the engineering piece, but different people get fulfillment in different ways. And some of us are builders and, and we love the net new, but if you hand us something to maintain, it is going to, the, the, the flywheel is going to completely spin itself apart. <laughs> like, don't, don't give me something to operationalize. It's not my strength. And, and other people, um, and I have people like this on my team, I, you know, I, I'm just blown away by what, by what they can do by operationalizing things and, and, and taking something that's spinning and, and making it faster and knowing where to apply grease and, and keep it running and, and keeping it maintained. And, and each of us get a different fulfillment out of different, you know, different parts of that, that process. And so, you know, it just, it's just such a, a beautiful thing because everybody, everybody sort of gains from it, including the customers. So your examples, your stories. So we're going to take a whole left turn. But for me, and, and I hope I don't lose anybody by jumping over into finance. But for me, one of the things that helped me understand this was actually real estate investing and just learning about real estate investing. It's something that I had always wanted to do and was really, I don't know why, emotionally important to me. And part of that was because I really struggled. <laughs> I, I, I was denied over and over again. I was, I was actually evicted from my apartment in college. So like home and housing has been a tricky thing. And so it took me so long, so badly, I wanted to own my own, my own house. And I knew that that was a step on the path to doing real estate investing. So it took forever and ever and ever to get that thing started. But then when I, when I moved to Chicago, I fell in love with it. And so instead of buying something that was so big for myself, so that was the first stage. The second stage was, okay, now I have to buy something that's too small for me, less, like, less than I can afford. And I have to live in it with in, in, you know, a sh tiny Chicago condo with, with my, um, my first child and then eventually my second child stacked on top of each other. And it was a struggle and it was really, really painful. And then after you come out of that, you have, you know, and now we're, we're back in Michigan where my family's from, I have the space, but I still have that place. And, and it doesn't require very much for me to keep it and maintain it. And, and the emotional, I don't actually get very much financially from it, but the emotional support I feel from having that place as like my, my original home, my one home is, is really valuable. The thing that's sort of important about this is first off, how hard it was to get that going. But the other thing is some of the financials of it. So I actually lose money every month on that condo. I'm underwater on that condo on a cash flow basis. However, I locked in, I, I sort of locked in rent. So I'm, I'm paying 2000, you know, at a monthly percentage, I'm paying um, whatever it was when I bought it, 2017, 2018, something like that. So, so that's my monthly payment and my monthly payments aren't going up. They're going, they're going down. So those are sort of locked in as a fixed cost as the benefits go up. So as I moved into a second house, the benefit went up of personally, emotionally feeling like, wow, I have, look what I've done with my life. The, the second sort of lever there is, is the way equity grows. So even though cash flow 
has been underwater. I, I, I lose money every month on cash flow. The property, and especially with the recent changes to the market, the property itself has increased in value pretty tremendously. And then the the third way is being able to actually use the bank to actually tap into the bank from a leverage perspective. So if I had invested my cash, there's no way I, I would have only been able to make a small investment. In fact, it was my first house. So I, I, I put very little down. And so if I had put that money, even in crypto, I wouldn't have been able to have an investment that was, you know, whatever, it, whatever it's worth multiples, you know, 20 times larger than my investment. Cause I only put like five, 5% down. So the bank actually made most of the investment and I get credit for managing it. And so there's sort of three levers at play in real estate investing. And that makes it kind of durable against individual ones. It's, there's certain periods where it's very scary for me and where it's, it's like we were very nervous we wouldn't find new tenants during the pandemic. And it, it definitely created a lot of stress. But it was durable against that in the sense that we could afford to we set ourselves up in a way where we could continue to operate it at a loss because even though the pandemic affected tenants in a negative way, it positively affected home ownership. So because it has sort of three levers at play, those levers compound in a way that makes it durable. So it was learning about that as a dream and an aspiration that I really started to understand leverage and sort of where to apply it and how to apply it and how you can create these compounding effects. Now, real estate investors sort of know that all day long. If, if you go spend some time on, um, I think the forum is called Better Pockets or Bigger Pockets or something like that. They, they have these, all these strategies of how you do it. And, and there's, all this, there's this whole sort of complex scheme they call BRRRR, which stands for, I, I don't remember what it is, but, but they, they do like one financing, then they do another financing. That's too complicated for me, but learning about how they... Learning that adjacent that that adjacent skill set really helped me look for the levers in my own life that I can I can apply and I can create that multiplication effect for. So that was sort of the the first step, and then the second step was like, okay, well, I like working with my hands, but that's not my main thing. Like I'm I'm good with software. So how do I? What is the contractor equivalent of owning a property with software? And that's owning one of these, one or many of these small, I don't want to call them a micro app. I mean, they're, they're not, but, but the returns I get based on the equity on the capital up front for my application are three times better than real estate. So, so the application itself, if you focus on one of these applications, the cash flow is great. The cash flow is better than, than my real estate property, but the property, if you want to think about an application as a property, it holds its value as well. And so even if you invest all the money in the application or spend all the, all the money, all the cash flow that you get, the property equity value grows and, and it does so, the returns are better than, than real estate. So being, having these skills of being an engineer, a developer, marketer, I love the like single founder ethos of like Jack, you know, I don't even like Jack of all trades, the, the polymaths that are out there in the single founder world. And this is what attracted me to Shopify are incredible. It just has like such a, such a, it's just such a wonderful, I know this is almost cliche at this point in 2021, but it's just a, a wonderful time to be creative and, and working on these types of things. Have you been able to use this principle 
at Autobooks when you have, you know, bigger marketing department and more resources? Yeah, it's interesting. So, so the way Autobooks works is we work with, um, we work with financial partners. So, so I'm, I'm a marketer, but I do no top of the funnel work at Autobooks. All of my work is essentially product marketing for the, the banks. We, I'll say financial institutions out of habit, but banks basically um, that use our product. So Autobooks is just a feature of internet banking, of, of an online bank account. And so there's no top of the funnel. So my, some people talk about TAM, you know, the total addressable market. Mine is very hard capped. There is no like fuzzy math on TAM. It's, you know, it's how, well, how many 13 year olds are there out there or whatever. Like mine is, if you don't have a bank account at our, at one of our banks, like there's listeners out there, I would say, go try out Autobooks. Unless they bank with one of our banks, they can't. They can't sign up for Autobooks. There's some exceptions to that, but but fundamentally, that's that's true. And so it creates this problem where I have to market through the bank. Like I actually act like a free agency of the bank that does product marketing. This is what I do all day long: is do product marketing from sending emails as the bank, trying to drive adoption into a feature in their internet banking. And banks are very relationship focused. They're not used to email, you know, email marketing, marketing automation. They're very used to sort of in branch. They're, they're very retail institutions just by, by their legacy. And so all the time we're trying to figure out how to, we're adding more and more banks onto this system. And at the same time, we're trying to customize the experience for the banks, for the banks particulars, each bank's particular while staying true to the constraints, what we know about our customers. So we have with, with Chris and the rest of jobs to be done, we know why people adopt autobooks, but each bank is different in their style and their tone. And so building a system that is not an agency, and this is what I, I, I really spend all day doing, is building a system where we're not a marketing agency doing everything that the bank wants, but, but the system is resilient to the bank's inputs and we can customize these, these workflows or these, these marketing systems to, to the bank's needs is crucial. So that's, that's one, one thing at Autobooks. The other thing that's like a really interesting challenge is because we know our customers, because we know jobs to be done, because we know that the situations that our customers are in, what we know what to look for as far as when, like, I'll say when they're in trouble. And actually some of that, we have access to some of that information. And so we can tap into those behavioral events in a way that's, that's really interesting. So we could just launch a campaign and we do where we just send a package of emails, but that's actually not as effective because there's something in our customers' lives that changes. And that change makes them, it's the causal mechanism that makes them go look for a better way, a solution, a a way to make progress. And so we're trying to design systems that don't just send email campaigns, but actually tap into those moments that, that observe and tap into the moments when the customer is really struggling so that we can be the solution for that particular struggle. We know, we know the four struggles that customers deal with. And so we try and 
build and deploy systems to the bank's particulars that are resilient to the bank's inputs, because we're a very small team. We have 100 banks right now. And the team is, I want to say, I don't know, maybe eight people. And so each workflow is customized to the bank's particulars and also hooks into the customer's transactional, like their behavioral needs, like what it, whatever it is that, that they are going through it at that moment. So it's a really interesting, really fun sort of scalable problem. And then, of course, there's all the soft messaging, make sure that the conversion copywriting is is really good. And and how do I scale the conversion copywriting team was was a really another leverage point. So big thank you to Joanna Weeb. We 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 actually hired two of her former students. And then we we added our own education on top of that for the audiobook specifics. And so it was like, okay, how do we build that was another leverage scale problem. How do we actually build this the the copywriting system? And a huge thank out to uh shout out to like Val Gessler and um Ali Blum and Claire for sort of setting the foundation. So that they came in, those three came in and we figured out how to do it one off. And then we said, okay, how do we like make, like those three are so incredible. How do we make more of them? And, and so then we looked at Joanne and we're like, okay, we've got a, a sort of a, an input pipeline here. Let's make them, let's accelerate the learnings in the company. Let's figure out how to do the conversion copywriting. So there's all these sort of flywheels, these, these systems spinning, and they're all trying to align. Like the goal is to then go up one more level, the system system, and get all of those systems pointed in the right direction, ultimately to create the best experience for the customer, for our customers that are struggling. And, and if we do that well, if we focus on value creation, value capture will follow. And so, you know, luckily and, and fortunately so far, that's been true. And particularly through the pandemic, we've been able to help a lot of people that ran their businesses face-to-face figure out how to move into an all-digital world and accept payments digitally. And, and that's been a really, really sort of cool experience. So translating this into like a simple structure, I imagine... For example, as a marketing professional, you can do something of your own, but it won't be scalable. So firsthand, you add expert knowledge on top of yourself to amplify your knowledge. So that becomes like an expert setup instead of a regular setup. And then you hire people below yourself so that they can carry on that work when you go and move on to something else. Yeah, I think so. I, I think the only the only place I pause is like is below. Um, I don't know if I would say it's below. Like they, they're our conversion copywriters are way better than me, and so I think about it more like I'm just designing the system, and they're designing mm-hmm. they're designing the copy or their part of the experience. And so, so you're essentially outside, and it's like expert and execution. That's right. Yeah, that's a. I like that a little bit better. Yeah, and then. The next step is like, especially with our copywriters lately, they've been really stepping up and they're identifying ways that they can do this themselves. And, and so for, you know, for me, that's been the most remarkable and rewarding thing is because now they're like spinning on their own. And that's just, it's just so cool. It's just really rewarding. That's such a great example. So let's talk a little bit. I think we need to wrap up based on time. Let's talk about ways how this can be scaled. So one 
idea of scaling that is using automation so that your initial example of making, you know, evergreen behavior-based campaigns instead of a single broadcast. Another way is to hire people who can do this repeatedly. Am I missing out on anything? Anything else you can do? I think product. So product as a lever, this is where I'd actually defer. I think my friend Eric Jorgensen is working on a course where he actually is going a layer deeper than this. I'm more just, I just sort of find them. He's actually trying to break the system of of systems down and and articulate particular levers. So um, I'd probably reference him again, but I think product is a key one. So you and I talked offline about UPC code. So Here's a good example is I'm, I'm spending, I've been spending my time working on customer support. And so I recently hired somebody to handle customer support for me. And so they're taking that over. Well, that's, that's sort of lever one. And I have, I have about six or seven common requests to come in. Like when they come in, I know what it is. And so the first thing is, okay, I'm going to teach um, Madi about how to handle those requests. And so that's that's how I scale it the first time. The next step is then to just stop them coming to Madi. Like I'm going to go fix the product. I'm actually going to going to invest in the product on these areas so that we get less and less of those customer support. So that's like a a way that I will stack. I plan on stacking these levers, but it only works. I can't do that right now because I'm still handling customer support on the day to day. So I need to figure out so it can work in tiers and then hopefully I'm just paying Madi to do to do nothing or I figure out how you know what she wants to do and and what she's really excited about and where she wants to take her career and I figure out how that aligns with UPC code manager and I figure out how how I can give her those opportunities and and both of us are aligned and we can both grow together. So yeah, that products a, a really big one. Engineering of course is a big one. Um, money. So like actual capital expenses is, is another one. And I feel like a mis- Oh, the most important one. So I can also, I also think about it in terms of where you, where you apply a lever. And so focusing on yourself, investing in yourself, memorizing frameworks, like, um, so another good example is, is heuristics. I, I think of like heuristics, there's either a concrete heuristic, I before E except after C. Or there can be a complex heuristic, a more abstract heuristic. So I have one in my mind of impact over effort and and trying to visualize the shape of an impact over effort curve and when to stop, when to stop working on something and when when to double down. That's actually what we're talking about here. So investing in yourself and educating yourself, learning adjacent skills, that's probably one of the most important ones of all because that compounds everywhere, your personal life, your professional life. And so that meta learning, learning how to learn is probably one of one of the most important ones that, that I shouldn't forget. And I think I'm forgetting like two others that I keep track of, but, but those are the big ones. When it comes to that self-improvement that you mentioned, what are your favorite resources there that our listeners can go to? Oh, okay. So my, I love this question. Uh, my absolute favorite is go to Farnham Street. I think it's fs.org or fs.com. And they have these books, The Great Mental Models. And they used to be really hard to get. I think they just released them again. So, so they're, they're cheaper if you want the book form, but they're, of course, free on the, their blog. And just, they're like my flashcards. Like learning these mental models are incredible. And 
that way I, I can't recommend that enough. That's, that's fantastic. What's your advice for our listeners who are afraid to change something in their life? Because, you know, it feels like you're doing something, it works, and every kind of improvement in franchise comes with a lot of upfront effort and insecurity and things like that. How can we find motivation to overcome that? Oh, man, that's such a good question. I think the first thing is to scope it down into a bite-sized piece. So, so I'm not saying, and I, I really want to caution against sort of automate everything or automate or abstract everything. Don't turn it into bigger than it needs to be. Like premature abstraction in, in a lot of engineering functions, a lot of engineering orgs, I see premature abstraction as actually worse than than not not abstracting enough. And so just ship it. Like do the thing, do the thing that doesn't scale. That's like a, a cliche at this point, but just do it once. I'm not I'm I'm really strongly not advocating uh for not sending a campaign. I'm saying send send campaigns and then when the thing works, that's where you invest. So with UPC code manager, it was like the I don't know how many time, how many projects I, I had started before that. And, and like I said, it wasn't even the thing I thought was going to be big. But if you're open to it and you're listening to sort of the signals and you're just trying a lot of things and you're having fun, I think that's really important too. Then when you find the thing that is both fun and profitable, be ready to pay attention to that. Don't don't sort of have the target lock on your on your previous what you thought it was going to be like be open to to making that adjustment and and making the change. So I think that that to me is is it. It's just just being I, I don't know not to get like too weird, but like being meditative, like being present and paying attention to what's going on, like what's going on in your life. I think is uh, is really important to that. One of my favorites is that basically it's all a sequence of a lot of mistakes and a lot of learning, <laughs> like literally you you know you you secure your risks and then you just make mistakes and make mistakes <laughs> yeah. and more mistakes and you just like how could that be so stupid two weeks ago to just you know when you write job descriptions when you think about roles when you think about delegation going through a ton of that now and i learn every week yeah and i could be like how could i not see that it's obvious but it was not and everybody grows like that yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. I mean, that's what it feels like. It's like stumbling up. Like it just, it, it feels like stumbling, falling up the stairs is, is what it really feels like. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Didn't think about falling up the stairs. That's fun. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom today. It was really awesome. Uh, where can people find more of your philosophy online and your work and what you do? Yeah, it was, it was my pleasure. This has been so much fun. They can just follow me on Twitter, Jordan Skoll. I have a uh, a website uh, ventures-adventures.com where I list projects that I'm that I'm working on. They can always find me at Autobooks, working on Autobooks things. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jordan. Have a wonderful rest of your week. All right. Thanks, Jane. <laughs>